0: our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. In her book, To Boldly Grow, author Tamar Haspel uses the term first-hand food to describe anything you get with your own two hands, meaning gardening, fishing, hunting, and even beekeeping. According to Tamar, growing and sourcing your own food just makes it taste better. On this week's show, we're getting our hands dirty and meeting some people who have a passion for the great outdoors. Before Tamar shares her wisdom with us, we learn what the buzz is about at New Orleans Audubon Zoo. Dominique Fleitas introduces us to the colonies of honeybees she helps maintain there. We also tell you about the strange history of hippos in Louisiana and meet Danlin Brennan, who has spent her life foraging wild edibles. Her passion for wildcraft is clear, yet complicated by a desire to keep her methods and locations hidden. We're heeding the call of the wild on this week's Louisiana Eats. At New Orleans Audubon Zoo, you can expect to find the kinds of animals that have enchanted zoo-goers for generations. Tigers, elephants, giraffes. But the zoo is also home to tens of thousands of tiny creatures that, although they may not draw the same kind of crowd, play a vital role in our food system. I'm talking, of course, about those prolific pollinators. Bees. Curators and animal keepers have managed bee colonies at the Audubon Zoo since 2016, maintaining two hives tucked away behind the alligator lagoon. Since then, the zoo has set up a more public space, a garden that provides host plants and foraging opportunities for our native bees and butterflies.
1: Our pollinator garden is located in between our orangutan exhibit and our elephant exhibit. So we're up against some competition, but it's this perfect little bright spot where people come over and get to learn about pollinators and why they're important. Curator
0: Dominique Fletus or Dom as she likes to be called, met me at the zoo's colorful pollinator garden on a sunny afternoon. Along with her work in the Louisiana Swamp and Jaguar jungle, she helps run the garden and on-grounds apiary program. Before taking me to see the zoo's colonies, Dom wanted to introduce me to some native bees bumbling among the garden-set trees and stokesia asters.
1: So our pollinator garden, we actually got through a grant for Bayer Save the Bee. And so what a pollinator garden is, is a garden that has plants that are specifically producing extra pollens and nectars and things that are pollinating friends like bugs and bees and butterflies and hummingbirds love to eat and they need that to survive and in doing so they're transferring that pollen from one plant to another to help it fruit so a lot of our favorite things that we like to eat like satsumas are pollinated by bees and things like that. We like to choose plants that have a, a a big pollen source. Um, There's different pollinator plants that have a variety of different attributes. So some being, well, this one might be high in pollen versus nectar. And it's particularly with bees. They need both to be able to make the hive function and be able to make the honey that we love to eat. People can come have
0: a look at this and then be inspired to create their own pollinator garden in
1: a very tiny little garden space. Exactly and so one of the the beautiful things about pollinator gardens is it doesn't have to be huge. Anyone could put even just a small pot in front of their house with the right plants and it's going to make a difference. You're going to have a couple bees or butterflies visit it and that's all that they need to do.
0: Now Dom, tell me about your native bee here in the garden because you made me laugh coming over here that there's a native bee that hangs out. Which one is he and how can you tell?
1: So, everyone is used to the European honeybee. That is the honeybee that beekeepers have that produces the vast majority of honey that we eat. But there's so many different species of native bees that, I mean, I don't even know if we'd be able to count how many. And here in Louisiana, we have quite a few and I've seen a couple in the pollinator garden. And the one that we're looking at right now on the Indian blanket flower is an all black bee. And you can see he's got these big yellow pollen baskets from all of the pollen that he's collected from these plants. But I don't for the life we know what species he is because every time I try and take a picture of him, he flies away. Well, it's the most fascinating thing because if I saw that
0: bee, if you hadn't told me, I would have thought maybe he was just a big black fly.
1: No, we have a a wide variety of native bees, some being black, some being black and yellow, similar to a honeybee or brighter yellow, and some, like our sweat bees, are bright green. Totally different from uh, the bees that you would normally see, but... They all have that purpose in pollinating, it's just honeybees do it in such a way that produces so much honey that it kind of is a good human uh, honeybee interaction.
0: So if someone wanted to start their own garden, are there any particular plants that you would suggest for this climate?
1: Yeah, so always sticking with your natives is a great thing because you know the natives are going to grow here and there's a lot of places that you can get them where you know that they haven't used pesticides, which is very important because that's one of the things hurting our bees. City Park does a a garden sale over at the Pelican Greenhouse, the Herb Society locally does a, a garden sale, but a lot of times things like our native salvias, you could do a small citrus tree like a satsuma. Things that will last a long time, but also keeping in mind that you're going to need to plant things throughout the year. So you don't want something that's just going to be blooming during the springtime because that doesn't give the bees anything to eat in the fall. So either something that's blooming for a while or that you can change out throughout the year.
0: Next, Dom and I walked over to a little island in the Louisiana swamp exhibit where the zoo's two hives are located. Before we could get close to the colonies, we had to suit up in gear designed to protect us against stings. First, a long heavy white cotton jumpsuit. Then, a pith helmet and veil made of a breathable mesh material that covered our faces and necks. Finally, heavy leather gloves that crawled up past our elbows. It was 93 degrees that afternoon. And let me tell you, that suit was hot. But as we got closer to the hives containing tens of thousands of bees, I was happy to have some protection. Okay, Dom, we're all suited up. Here we are, you are the cutest beekeeper I've seen in a long time. Now what are you doing there?
1: So I'm lighting our smoker. Oh, there we go, that's what we wanna see. A nice, thick, cool smoke. That looks like a um,
0: watering can with an accordion on one side.
1: (laughs) That's a really good description of it. So a smoker is a beekeeper's best friend. It's one of the few tools you always want to have on you when you're going to enter a hive. And what it is is we just have some pine straw in there with a little bit of paper pulp to start a nice cool smoke. And when we open up the hive, we're gonna smoke the bees, so we're just gonna pump that a couple times to release some of the smoke into the hive. And what that does is it distracts the bees from you entering in there. So it's, it's not harming them at all, it's not hot, but it gives them something to focus on that isn't you. Because if someone was to enter your home and start messing around, you'd be upset. But if they came in and maybe gave you some cake, you might be distracted. Um, so this is just <laughs> something to turn their attention away, kind of blocks their pheromones a little bit from sending out a warning signal, but it's not in any way hurting them we get it nice and thick, nice and thick, oh my. So we're gonna open up the hive. This is what we call hive A. It's our hive closer to the white gator building and it's our more productive hive. So you can tell it's got an extra box on it because they were already filling up one of their small supers with honey.
0: A super is a box used to store surplus honey. As Dom opened up Hive A, she blew smoke over the top of the frames to distract the bees as she checked on their progress. Each frame is designed to hold honeycomb, the cells of wax bees make to store their honey or eggs.
1: So first we're gonna check one of these frames and this is a honey super. So the only thing we should be seeing in here is capped honey if they've finished filling it all up, which is what we've got. And you can see when you hold up to the light, kind of the areas where there might be some darker spots where they probably have brought in some darker pollen because every flower has a different color pollen. There's a whole little area on this frame where they've got some dark areas. So this entire box is filled up and looks like this with the capped honey. So it is ready for us to extract it.
0: How long did it take for them to build this up?
1: So it all depends on your bees and the time of year and what is blooming Um, because this is a hot season and we've got a lot blooming I think they've had this box now just for a couple weeks and these bees are are fairly productive but usually within a couple weeks we'll get a box full but at some times of the year and especially if you have a really productive hive you could have something filled up within a week the honeybees that we generally think of when we think of you know what we're getting our honey from are European honeybees Uh, And across the world, European honeybees have kind of taken over as far as like the main bee for pollinating. And within that, there are different breeds of European honeybee. So a lot of time you'll get Italians or Russians. um, And even the Africanized bee is just a different breed of honeybee. It's not like a disease that has become on that bee. Uh, And each of those breeds has specific traits. So some beekeepers might specifically want to work with one because it is more resistant to parasites or infections. Some are harder workers, some are a little more aggressive. So they all have these uh, big varieties just amongst the different breeds that they have.
0: Dom, these bees, some of them of course are busy as bees and they're moving about the frame. Some of them are totally still. Are, are they resting? What, what exactly is the behavior?
1: So we have some bees over here, you can see, eating out of the, the open combs, so they're eating some of the honey, or they're depositing, depending on what stage they're at. I can see some of these still have pollen in it, so they might be depositing their pollen into those combs to be able to produce honey, while some are eating or cleaning it out. But every bee has its purpose, so you have your bees that are coming back with pollen you know, on their little pantaloons to be able to place in there, and then some are just making sure that there's food to be able to feed some of the baby bees, which, let's see if we can find a frame where we can find some baby bees. Mm-hmm. And the propolis is very sticky and holds everything together.
0: Also known as bee glue, the propolis is a sap or resinous mixture that bees collect from trees or plants to strengthen the comb and to seal cracks. Breaking through it, we now had the opportunity to see the colony's caste system in action, made up of the queen, workers, and drones.
1: So what we just did was broke through the propolis that's holding everything together. It's this resin-like material that the bees make And it also has kind of an antimicrobial property and is used a lot in uh, holistic medicine because you can make teas out of it.
0: Oh my goodness, that hive is full. They're
1: very engaging. Aren't they? Yeah, they are. So the queen is somewhere in these two boxes. Queens can be difficult to find, um, but she is working hard and she is laying eggs. So somewhere in the bottom two boxes is usually where you will find her most colonies have at least two brood boxes like that for her to lay eggs but she is a much larger bee than our regular worker bee so she's a little bit easier to spot If so you can find her taking a, a quick break searching
0: among the thousands of worker bees we had no luck locating the queen this isn't uncommon in fact Beekeepers will often mark the queen with a dot of paint on her thorax for easy identification. Oh,
1: you look here, this is a drone bee. So that's Ah. a male bee. He's bigger, he's darker. He's got big eyes. So most of the bees that you're going to see whenever you're out and about and see them landing on flower, those are going to be your female bees. Those are your worker bees. The drone bee's main purpose in life is to mate, to help keep the population going. But other than that, they don't play too much of a role in the, in the beehive. What's the life
0: expectancy of bees?
1: So a queen, a queen can live, I think it's up to seven or so years. I mean, she would be able to run a hive for that long. And as she got older, if she started not managing her her workers well enough her workers might overtake her uh to get a new queen in the system that's a little younger but a worker bee only lives for about 23 days and so they they go through the cycle of you know as when they're first born they start with these tasks and then they kind of move up the rank of what they do until they're out bringing in pollen and then helping to keep the hive going by making the sacrifice. They're all
0: so pretty with their fuzzy little bodies and their shiny, shiny wings. They're just beautiful insects.
1: They are. No, they're amazing, especially when you get a chance to look up close at them, just to really take in how gorgeous they are. And you can see a couple of them here just kind of t- sticking their little tongues in, trying to get a little bit of honey that, uh, that has spilled. And I get, I get taken away just looking at them because they're just amazing little creatures and as much work as they can get done. And it's, I mean, amazing to think... Everyone in this hive has a role, and they, they play that role so well, and, you know, they work together to make everything that they do happen. And You know, if we could do that a little more in our lives.
0: Isn't that the truth? Tom, thank you so much for uh, taking me into this unknown part of the swamp exhibit where the bees live. Thank
1: you. No problem. Thank you so much for coming to visit me and the girls.
0: That was our 2019 visit to the Audubon Zoo with curator and beekeeper Dominique Fletus Coming up next, we're joined by Washington Post food columnist Tamar Haspel. Her new book, to boldly grow, chronicles her adventures cultivating everything from tomatoes to turkeys in her own backyard. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Coffee Tucker and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness, always made with just 3 simple ingredients: aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial crystal hot sauce how new orleans does flavor from rouse's markets synonymous with seafood straight from louisiana's waterways rouse's markets tastes like home and from camellia brand beans done right a new orleans tradition since 1923 now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home.
2: I'm Tamar Haspel. I'm a columnist at The Washington Post, and my new book is To Boldly Grow.
0: In the prologue of To Boldly Grow, Tamar Haspel tells us that she's never been much of a doer. An avid reader with a voracious curiosity, Tamar wanted to know something about everything, provided it could be done from the comfort of her armchair. Working out of her New York City apartment, she started a career as a freelance journalist, writing about food, and science for several publications. That's when Tamar met her future husband, Kevin, someone she says, unlike her, was a doer. A doer with a green thumb, that is. Together, the couple started a garden on the roof of their Manhattan building, growing tomatoes, peppers,
2: and blackberries. And then I did a lifestyle U-turn. My husband and I, due to a bunch of different circumstances, ended up leaving the Upper West Side and coming to Cape Cod, where we bought this little house on two acres full of woods. And I started looking around to say, all right, well, what can I do here that I couldn't do in New York? And the answer was, a whole lot. To
0: Boldly Grow chronicles Tamar and Kevin's adventures as they adopt a more active approach to their diet, raising livestock, growing vegetables and even hunting their own meat. Recounting tales of their successes and failures, the book is filled with practical tips and hard-won wisdom for those looking to cultivate their own food. Insight that Tamar didn't have when they first started gardening on that New York
2: City rooftop. I didn't even think the building manager would let us do it. But I asked, and apparently no one had asked before, and she said, Yeah, sure. Have at it. (laughs) And so Kevin and I, we started doing all this research, you know, you see, oh, what kinds of tomatoes can grow in pots and what kind of soil and all this stuff. But then, you know, we went to the nursery and we asked the guy, Mike, hey, Mike, which tomatoes should we get to grow in pots? And he's like, well, that one, that one, and that one. I'm like, okay. But the lesson there is that there are a lot of right answers to gardening there and there's not one right way to do things and if you ask five experts about it they'll probably give you five different answers and they're all right and you know gardening is hyper local and you do what you can do on your rooftop or in your backyard and the best people to learn from are your neighbors but the best way to learn is by just trying it yourself jump in both feet try foods you like we learned we couldn't grow root vegetables um we couldn't grow cabbages because the insects ate them but we grow some really excellent tomatoes we can grow good collard greens and just lean into the things you can grow and get the things you can't grow somewhere else
0: well your husband Kevin like this is the the book is such a love letter to Kevin and um you sort of had a throwdown with Kevin Uh, On New Year's Day 2009. Tell me about
2: that proposal you made. So, we had already started gardening, and I had already gotten a little bit captivated with the idea that food that you get yourself was like different from other food. And it interested me, and I wanted to try other ways to get it. And, you know, I'm a writer, I was looking for a project. So, I said to Kevin, do you think that we can eat at least one food a day that we get firsthand? We garden it, we forage it, we hunt it. And Kevin is wildly supportive of me and my career. And he has a total 100% can-do attitude. And he goes, not a chance. (laughs) And I'm like, what do you mean not a chance? Who are you and what have you done with Kevin? And next you'll be telling me we should read the, the instructions. And so I had to talk him around a little bit. He goes, well, what are we gonna eat all winter? And it was true that it was the beginning of January. It was literally New Year's Day. And, you know, I had a few greens in the freezer from last year's garden. And I had made some imperfectly set red pepper jelly. Uh, And we could go clamming. But that's about where it ended. And we still refer to that as our winter of shellfish. (laughs) Because there there were a lot of clams involved. did you did, did you coin that term firsthand food? I had to because there wasn't a name for all of these things. And the thing that they have in common is that exactly what we were talking about. That when you get something with your own two hands, it feels different. And whenever I meet a fisherman or a hunter, foragers, gardeners, I ask them, does that food feel different? different to you. And every single one says, yes, that food feels different. So all of these activities, although they're very different activities, they have that in common, but there's no name for the category. So we had to invent one and we started calling it firsthand food. And that that that's where we went.
0: I loved your tales, Tamar, about You know, you went through the animals coming and killing the chickens and having the horrible experiences with the pile of feathers where once there was a Mm -hmm. little feathered friend and uh, it turns into turkeys. And just take me down
2: that path, if you would. Well, you know, the chickens were our first experience with livestock And we did let our chickens roam free because for a long time, all of our predators or almost all of our predators were nocturnal predators. So as long as you can lock them up in a predator proof coop at night, you can let them out during the day. And there are still some risks. A hawk might get a small one. And that did happen to us. But it's this liberty versus security challenge, you know, that the chickens like. To go outside and if you don't let them out they're like what the flock and they put their little picket signs up free range but then foxes did move in and we found out the hard way when we lost you know i think six or seven out of ten chickens and from that day to this we have not let them out because the liberty and security equation changed but it does even having animals that you don't kill to eat sort of accustoms you to the idea of life and death in livestock. And then we moved on to turkeys, obviously knowing that they were going to die the Sunday before Thanksgiving. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I take it super seriously. And I had to steel myself to do this. And, you know, Kevin and I really made sure that we understood how to slaughter a turkey, how to do it best. We use a cone and put them in upside down. And I took that knife and I cut the blood vessels and it went exactly as planned. And it sounds like it shouldn't be so hard. It took a fraction of a second, Um, but it was hard. And, uh, but we did it well. And that Thanksgiving was, was very, very gratifying. Take me down the path of some of your other food travels. Well, I think the hunting part, Um, And that's that's the last food chapter in the book. The hunting part was definitely uh, the hardest. Again, it's you're taking the life of an animal. And, you know, one of the things that happened is that each adventure that we embarked on taught us more, gave us more skills and sort of enabled us to tackle the next thing. And if we had started from scratch, I never would have gone to deer hunting. But because we had the chickens and then the turkeys, and I had some experience with this, I really wanted to do it because you know I wanted, I thought that eating uh, an overpopulated animal that was doing ecological damage was the most responsible way to eat meat. And so for my 47th birthday, I got a gun, <laughs> and a crew cut too, but that's not really part of the story. And I learned how to use it. And it took me a long time. It took four years before I actually shot a deer. Um, but that one deer I shot, and it it was small, it was a button buck. But my priority was to make sure that I had a safe shot that I could take with confidence, and I didn't care how big the deer was. And and it was a safe shot, and I it with confidence and the deer dropped with one shot and when I took that little deer into the processor it was actually it was funny because here's this tiny deer I put it in the truck bed and I take it to the processor and I walk into the processor and I got blood on my boots and there's a kid he's probably 19 and he's working on this giant eight point buck and I say to him can can you take my deer and he says yeah sure so he walks out with me and I open the tailgate and there's a tiny little deer on a on a tarp. And he looks at it and he goes, hmm, nice truck. And I'm like, yeah, well, it is a nice truck, but it took the wind out of my sails a little bit. He wasn't really then,
0: impressed with your animal. No,
2: he was not impressed with my animal. So he brought it in, he lifted it up like nothing. And while he was riding it up, I, I couldn't resist. I said, you know, that's the first deer I ever shot. And I remember he, he put the pen down and he looked at me, like I'm this curiosity, because he probably shot his first deer when he was six. And he looked at the deer and he pointed to the wound and he said, you shot it perfect. And it was it was a real moment for me. And I know the hunters out there are gonna laugh, but, but this was something that I learned to do. And to this day, if you ask me for a skill that I'm proud of, I mean, I've been trying to be a better writer for 25 years. But you asked me the skill I'm proud of, and I will tell you, I can shoot and field dress and break down a deer because it was way out of my comfort zone.
0: The last thing I really want to discuss with you is that this book, it was filled with marital advice. So would you give us a little bit of what you refer to as, for instance, competent spouse
2: doctrine? Yeah, the competent spouse doctrine, and I know a lot of couples have some version of this, is that the spouse who is better at it does it. And, you know, there's always going to be some holes because, like, with all things, say, related to boats and trucks, Kevin is better at it. So I felt like I had to beef up my skills or he'd end up doing all the work. And then, of course, we're both terrible at administration, but I'm marginally less terrible. So I end up doing that part. But every now and then the lights go out (laughs) because we just don't get our act together. But we do try and do a division of labor that makes us both happy. And we also try to have uh, areas where one or the other of us butts out. So okay, uh, there are lots of jobs that benefit from the two of us collaborating and, and, and both of our input can make it better. But there are lots of things that either Kevin should do or I should do. And the other one should just let it be that person's job and just don't be a Beninsky. But I am by nature, a little bit of a Beninsky, So this is hard for me sometimes, but I, I do try and do it. And it's funny because if you ask Kevin, what's the book about? He goes, me. It's it's about me. Well, it's kind <laughs> and, of
0: about him. And I I imagine yeah. he li- he likes it. He enjoys the book. He enjoyed
2: the attention. He does very much so. He loves the book. And you know, I was writing a blog with some of those stories, and and he liked them too. And you know, Kevin and I are very lucky. We're we're very happy together. And it's 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 been a joy to write about some of the these things that we've done.
0: If the food thing ever goes south on you, I think you've... I can hang up
2: a shingle. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah,
0: I think your marital advice is quite sound. So congratulations on the whole
2: thing. Thank you very much.
0: Tamar Haspel, columnist at The Washington Post and author of To Boldly Grow finding joy, adventure, and dinner in your own backyard. In 1910, U.S. Representative Robert Broussard of Louisiana introduced what would become known as the American Hippo Bill to Congress. What did this bill aim to accomplish? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you about this bizarre bit of food history when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry. Now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. What was the goal of the American Hippo Bill introduced to Congress in 1910? To get an understanding of this bizarre bit of Louisiana food history, we have to go back to 1884. That year, New Orleans hosted its first World's Fair also known as the World Industrial and Cotton Centennial. More than a million visitors descended on what is now Audubon Park to see exhibits from all over the world. Those who stopped by the Japanese pavilion received as a parting gift an ornamental plant with lavender blossoms called water hyacinth. While it may not look very intimidating, this aquatic plant native to the Amazon River Basin, is actually an aggressive invader that rapidly covers whole waterways. Soon after its introduction, water hyacinth was spanning across South Louisiana, choking bayous, killing fish, and impeding shipping. The problem continued for decades. Even the US War Department joined the eradication efforts, dumping oil all over the plants, But to no effect, it seemed like the state had exhausted all of its options. That is until 1910. At the turn of the 20th century, a rapidly growing population was straining America's meat supply. Native animals like the buffalo were all but extinct, and ranchers couldn't keep up with the nation's demands for meat. Enter the hippo. Following the advice of a pair of big game hunters, Congressman Robert Broussard of New Iberia proposed an ingenious solution to both Louisiana's invasive hyacinth problem and the American meat shortage. Broussard sponsored the American hippo bill, which, if approved, would set aside federal funds for the importation of the humble hippopotamus. Imagine bayous full of hippos munching on those pesky hyacinth flowers and American tables supplied with an exotic new source of protein. Hippo meat? (laughs) You bet. No less a big-game expert than Teddy Roosevelt himself endorsed the idea, and the New York Times salivated over what they dubbed lake cow bacon sound too far-fetched? It almost came to pass. Literally. Broussard's bill gained a lot of notoriety, but ultimately fell just short of passage. Louisiana's hyacinth problem persists, and the only hippos I've seen lately are living it up at the Audubon Zoo. I'm Poppy Tooker, and I don't know about you, but I am glad to say that hippo gumbo is not real Louisiana Eats. The Sometimes, the more you love something, the more you risk destroying it. That's certainly true when hunting for sport, but what about our connection to flora rather than fauna? For a forager in Portland, Oregon, the
3: consequences of gathering can sometimes be hard to measure. My name is Danlin Brennan, and I am a forager and been eating off the forest floor since I was a child. When I go out to... to wildcraft, right, or to harvest. I go alone. I'm pretty much camouflaged. I hide, basically, in the woods and I sneak around. So I, I go early in the morning, um, which is so peaceful. I, I love it. And it's really personal to me, actually. It's it's an experience that means a lot to me. So yeah, I have a lot of people asked to come along and it's not that I don't want to enjoy my time with them, but it's it's kind of my own thing to sneak around in the woods.
0: (laughs) Foraging is a lifelong calling for Danlin. Her passion is clear, but there's also a tension that runs through her voice, a desire to keep her methods and harvest locations hidden. That's because the more people who know about her world of wildcraft, the smaller
3: it becomes. It is challenging finding a place where I can forage, and that's usually why i stay so secretive about it um because yes there's public property uh, that i can find uh, but there's also a lot of private property and i have in the past asked owners of a property if if i could harvest from there a lot of times they look at me funny or tell me no i've even had a, a lady tell me that she was going to sick her dogs on me if I keep collecting those violets. So, (laughs) uh, you know, I'm cautious, uh, especially when it comes to bringing groups of people to a location. So um, I lead by example. I don't just go and start ripping things out of the ground. That's not, that's not my way.
0: Used to be foragers were people who went out into the wild and found food. Now, High-end, fine restaurants hire people whose job title is forager. So tell us what it means to
3: you to be a forager. I always thought it was so normal. You know, growing up, I I would have to give the credit to Polly Ivins, who was a woman who introduced me to eating um, from nature. So I, I was introduced to a lot of uh, different edible plants as a child, so I thought it was normal that everybody um, would just eat from the forest.
0: Danlon's connection to foraging traces back to early childhood. I asked her to take us back to her earliest memories on the forest floor.
3: Around five, six, seven years old, grade school. Uh, I do remember getting lost in the woods with my younger sister And her telling me that she was hungry, you know, what are we going to do? We're lost in the woods. I was like, don't worry, we can eat the dandelions. (laughs) I remember saying things like that to her.
0: Though dandelions can sometimes save an afternoon in the woods, being a small child in the wilderness comes with its share of scraped knees and sometimes worse.
3: I'm surprised I'm alive, actually. (laughs) I've had a lot of uh, close calls.
0: It is wildcraft, after all. For Danlin, foraging is a practice with deep roots. She considers her work to be part of a greater lineage.
3: And it's our ancestors, of course, because that's that's what we did. I and, and, you know like in modern times we can go to the store and get whatever we want. Um, you know, we forget about these things, but I think it moves people so much because there's this deep memory that resurfaces. And whether it reminds them of a specific person or not, um, I think that memory is in everybody. It's in it's in our DNA, you know, that, that we have this deep relationship with plants. Um, recently, I was on an, an herb walk introducing people to plants in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, afterwards, I had a young gentleman come up to me and he just, he was so beautiful, kind of like expressing his gratitude uh, for doing this and he didn't say anything specific about you know as a person that this reminded him of but it moved him a lot and and he didn't really know why and he was just so thankful that I, I for me like, I, you just walked with me through the woods so <laughs> okay <laughs> but uh yeah it means a lot to people and that's what I think is really rewarding. While Danlin
0: does occasionally lead a flock of fledgling foragers on expeditions for her the smaller the group, the better.
3: I would love to take a group of one person with me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be ideal, where I can really have an intimate time with them and explain to them kind of my process, which is intimate. And might be funny, but I, it's almost conversational with the plants um, when I go out and I'm looking for a specific, I almost want to call it like a person. It's, it's a, an individual, this plant that I'm looking for or that I'm going to you know, take for myself or for other people to make into medicine or for food so it's yeah it's kind of a, a big deal so I, I like being with maybe one person two people to kind of show them how intimate the process actually is. I imagine that you must also have a sort of
0: pull and and take on this because if you teach too many people about these things it could be wipe out everything that's growing naturally that you're depending on. Do you feel that tension and how do you handle that?
3: Absolutely. You got it. Yeah, I do feel that tension. Um, I, I understand people are excited. I don't think that people have ill intentions and people are excited. They want to go harvest. But I think education helps a lot and especially educating people when they're young, educating Groups of people who maybe wouldn't naturally be exposed to these things um, is really important to me, too. So I don't want to make it into a trendy thing. I want to reach people who need it. I don't know how else to say that. Um, And so I I do work with the Oregon Food Bank, where I volunteer as an instructor gardening for low-income communities. So I like introducing people to the plants where they have a lot of, when they have a lot of respect for it. It's a give and take, it's not just take, take, take. And us humans, we, we love to take. And uh, it's funny, I've had dreams where I'm the one that's taking and I'm the one that is gathering all these things and somebody comes out in my dream and's it's like, hey, you know, don't do that you realize that you're being very selfish. And <laughs> so it's definitely in my, in my mind that I'm afraid of doing that and I'm afraid of exposing things and, and making it something that someone could abuse. So if I am going to introduce people to this, I really stress the responsibility that you have to take on when going into these wild areas and, and taking from the earth that way.
0: Want to get in touch with Danlin to learn how to wildcraft yourself? That's not so easy. With so much of her time spent under a canopy of trees, you probably won't be surprised to learn that she's routinely off the grid.
3: I'm not that easy to find. Um, If you're hiding in the forest, (laughs) I guess not. I guess not, but it looks like I'm going to have to expose myself at some point. Um, You can find me online, my... (laughs) Um, my name I go by, a lot of people know me online, is Dirtfish, which is funny um, because I do think of myself as kind of swimming through the dirt, right? I'm swimming through life, like in the dirt. Uh, so, And I, I find the dirt to be beautiful. That's where everything comes from. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people know me by the name Dirt. That's actually a nickname of of mine. Oh, you don't look like your nickname is dirt. And it's so funny because people do. They think (laughs) it's a bad name. And I'm like, no, but everything beautiful comes from the dirt. What are you talking about? It's really funny. Really good dirt has a really wonderful scent. Yes, it does. Exactly. And good dirt um, gives us really healthy plants and vegetables and and then those healthy vegetables and plants then give us healthy animals and humans and so there's this connection again like i'm saying that for some reason now people don't it it doesn't come naturally to honor the dirt right but i do all the time um so people find me to be a bit funny that's probably why i try to stay out of the spotlight because i always have to explain myself (laughs) From 2017,
0: Portland-based forager Danlin Brennan, also known as Dirtfish. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of episodes are available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos too. If you're looking for a Poppy's pop-up drag brunch, join us on the last Sunday of each month through the summertime, June. July, and August at our home-away-from-home home, Tujac's Restaurant in New Orleans, French Quarter. You can make reservations and learn more by visiting Tujac'sRestaurant.com. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, writer, Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mullidoux. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.